Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. All right. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. (laughs) So I'm hoping to steal some time of yours today to talk through uh, a recent life change I've gone through that I think would be relevant and to give some context, uh, not to go into too much detail, but uh, I'm in a very fortunate position in that I have a continued job moving forward, uh, but it just happens to be with a different employer. Um, my company has sold off a division, and with that, I am going. Um, and so that provides an interesting opportunity for me to kind of step back and be a little bit more uh, introspective in terms of where I, I think I might be called to next. Maybe that's with this company uh, that's getting sold off, but maybe it's not. And so I thought this could be a valuable conversation to revisit uh, for myself, but also for other listeners, um, potentially at a similar stage in life or even, you know, coming out of college and not really sure where they're going next to reevaluate if they really want to take cultural capital seriously and uh, and how to move forward. And, and just to put a little more context on that, when I came out of college, I did not understand that. And so I kind of stumbled into where I'm at. And it wasn't until we had many conversations that I was able to uh, kind of have a clear path forward. Um, But now obviously there's a clear uh, uh, path available that I might not have considered. And now's the time potentially to consider it. So um, Mm. wanted to turn over to you and and just how do I I begin thinking about that? How do I begin filtering out, you know, where should I consider looking and, and applying towards, et cetera? Yeah, and I appreciate that. And so where we should start is um, remember that thou shalt not steal. So when you said mm-hmm. you wanted to steal some of my time. I knew that was going to come back to bite me. We've got to, we've got to close this podcast right now for the sake <laughs> of our viewers. We can't let you violate one of those commandments. <laughs> uh, well, you know, humor makes all things palatable. That was, I think it was a... Uh, Henry Beecher, but someone can look that up. So that's part of what part of what keeps us sane. It's actually what keeps you uh, uh, healthy through what you're looking at. It's called having a little lilt in life, and uh, to understand that. I have friends who've lost jobs in uh, coronavirus. Uh, our ministry has taken a hit in, in donations, for example. And then uh, all you have to do is just uh, read the paper and go, "We do not have it bad." With you know, relatively speaking, absolutely. So, I appreciate. That's part of what keeping a little lilt in life is uh, is understanding this isn't the end of the game. So, let's talk a little bit about this. We've we've called this, or it's it's called cultural capital, and uh, I think you want to unpack that a little bit today, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah. Well, yeah. So. We've, you and I have talked a little bit about cultural capital. We've thrown it on uh, this podcast before, um, but it is, I think, it's worth revisiting. And uh, I can, I can kind of kick us off with uh, it's. It hints towards 
um, being taken seriously, gaining influence, etc. So if uh, if you come out of college, for example, and you've you've never had work experience, and you go to step into a new company, um, regardless of how good your ideas are, they probably won't be taken very seriously uh, because you don't have much credibility, you don't have much merit. Um, that's a very personal example, but then you could expand from the individual and say, well, let's even look at the church. And when the church speaks on different issues in society, if the church doesn't really have very much cultural capital, they're not going to be taken very seriously. So as, as Christians, we have a a sort of an entirely different framework to think about from that perspective as well. Yeah. That's a good summary. Um, I don't know what else I can add to that. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, it's, yes, it's, it's uh, first of all, we, good to remember there are, there are sorts of uh, all varieties of capital. So there's such thing as uh, financial capital. So, uh, so you might, for example, uh, want to buy a half million dollar home. But if you don't have the financial capital, you're not going to be able to get a loan. If you don't have the bank to pay cash, you can't do it. Uh, it reminds me of uh, C.S. Lewis's point. The kingdom is not a democracy. And in that view, uh, a lot of a lot of Christians don't feel this way. They feel like, uh, well, God can do anything, and if my heart's right, uh, then He can use me in any way. Well, that's mixing up a few things. First, God can't do anything; He can't lie. And second, for Him to simply throw off human responsibilities being inconsequential doesn't fit with the view that we are the bride of Christ preparing for the wedding feast. It means we don't have to prepare at all. Just God will do what he wants to do. That kind of laissez-faire approach doesn't work when you look at these parables of Jesus, warning of an unprepared bride suddenly being aroused at midnight because her groom has come and she has burnt through all her oil. She hasn't invested her life well. And it's the same thing we see with the talents. The parable of the talents, distributing five to one, two to another, and one to another. And the one who is given five invests and earns five more. And you hear the master saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the master. Same with the two. But the one, remember, just says, well, I know you're a tough boss. Didn't want to lose it. Didn't want to risk it. Put it in the bank. I may actually put it in my mattress. And so here, you have what's yours. He says, you wicked, lazy slave. There's a very popular uh, and effective series of commercials on television for Southern New Hampshire University. They sort of have the president, one of the, one of the best voices for a president. You'd want to come here as commencement speeches because he is he's good. But on the commercial, I notice it says, talent is distributed equally, but opportunity is not. So in other words, Southern New Hampshire University, especially with its online courses, gives you that opportunity. I think that overlooks a couple of things. Number one, talent is not distributed equally. It's back to, again, C.S. Lewis's notion. The kingdom is not a democracy. It's, it's meritorious. You have to earn it. You have to earn cultural capital. And a lot of it depends on the talent you've been giving. 
by talent, talents, think of that, uh, are just natural gifts. So I'll give you two quick examples, Pat, and then we'll get to what can be done. So when I was a kid growing up in Michigan, every kid, or just about everyone, wanted to play for the Detroit Lions. Now, in hindsight, that had been a terrible decision. They've been a terrible team forever. But <laughs> so we wore Lions regalia, and we, you know, when we played, we were kids in the backyard. We assumed, you know, I'm Dick Knight Train Lane picking off this pass. You know, I'm Nick Petrosati running through the middle. By the way, great names back then for football players. Yeah, really. Alex Karras, Roger Brown. <laughs> but look at the name of the quarterback for a while. Milt Plum. <laughs> no wonder they were terrible. All right, back to our story. So I'm coming through high school. You begin to come into this, hmm, talent is not distributed equally. Uh, so even though I played college football, I didn't play at the level that I assumed I would play at because I just thought I was so good. All of a sudden you're inside a system that rates you. And even though I earned all state honors, I was not pursued by the school that my parents wanted me to go to the university of Michigan. So I had a great time. I played at Western Michigan. I was a very un in undistinguished career there. But the fact is you learn this is a meritocracy and talent has to be wedded to skill. But the talent to run, for example, a 4-4 in the 40-yard dash, which I, I didn't come anywhere near, requires two things. You have to have a natural talent in your body structure. Plus, you have to acquire the skills of a great runner to take what would naturally be, say, a 4-8 and turn it into a 4-4. It's talent plus skill. And uh, talent, therefore, is not distributed equally, but talent combined with skill can earn you cultural capital. So the second story reminds me, I was in a Midwestern city many years ago. I think we told this story before, but it was, uh, we were talking about this with a group of Christians and uh, this really great guy comes up. He's 29 years old and he's just earned his PhD from a Christian college. And uh, he says, uh, this is really hard for me to hear. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, nobody ever told me about this. And I have a degree and I'm finding I can't get into the arenas, educational arenas that I want to get into because my degree is viewed as inferior. Nobody ever told me this. What are you going to tell a 29-year-old who is steeped in debt and has earned a PhD from a Christian college that means he can't get access to the Big Ten universities in his region or the premier elite private colleges that he'd hope to teach at? So this is a, for readers, if you want to have some fun, uh, one of the early articles when Ross Duthat came out of Harvard is called The Truth About Harvard. It appeared in uh, The Atlantic. And the point of the article is, is, first it starts off with an excerpt from his paper, one of his papers. 
Mary was going to Harvard, which he said is really hard to get into. And then it's really hard to get less than an A. <laughs> he gives you an excerpt from a paper he wrote, which the class required going to a museum three times. This is Harvard. Uh, you read the excerpt, and I was going, what in heaven's name is he saying? And then immediately after that, he essentially says, I have no idea what I was saying. Because here's the truth <laughs> about Harvard. Truth about Harvard is the network. That's mm -hmm. why you go. And it's not a coincidence that the movie is called The Social Network. It's Zuckerberg and the rest going to Harvard. And by the way, when you watch the movie, notice how many times they go to class. Now, I know they go to class. I know they're bright people. That's not the point. The point is, they're pretty shrewd about cultural capital. They understand you've got to get into these networks, these dense overlapping networks of influentials. My friend in the city in the Midwest, who was 29, recognized all the capital he had earned did not merit anything or much of anything outside the faith community. What you're wrestling with, Pat, that I commend you for is the average Christian, well-intended and ill-instructed by his church leadership, basically builds some degree of relational capital inside their church. That relational capital might extend outside the walls of the church with befriending some people who are not part of the faith community. But beyond that, very few Christians seem to understand cultural capital. And cultural capital is earned. It's meritorious. And it's, it's <laughs> in a funny way, the other thing I thought when I was a young kid, I went golfing one time with my father. Now my father was a great guy, but he had taken up golf. I went with him, and I beat him the first time. I, know, I noticed we never went again, and later on when he had passed, my mother said, well, somebody beat you know, your father and something. He didn't, he didn't take it up again. <laughs> so, and I well, found that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, cause everything he did, he had to do well. He was straight A's through his doctoral program at the university of Michigan. So he earned cultural capital from a depression era kid in who grew up in a rough part of Chicago to teaching at an elite Midwestern engineering university and then working in some of the upper echelons with Dow Chemical Corporation. He understood cultural capital. Uh, even though he didn't really profess faith, he understood all that implicitly. We don't seem to. Now, here's a fascinating point, Pat. The world is full of fascinating points, by the way, but here's one. <laughs> It's uh, so the early church was primarily Jewish for its first 300 years. I mean, they are spiritual forebears, uh, the, the nation of Judah and Israel is and, and the Jewish tradition. It is stitched into the DNA of Judaism, this phrase to 
repair the world, the cultural mandate that we, comes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He placed them in the garden to cultivate it, where the German word culture comes from, that translated into ours, culture. And that is to basically earn the merit or the capital to be able to improve the world, to make it, as, if it's possible, where you live the best version of itself. So isn't it fascinating that even today, Pat, the Jewish people who make up roughly 3% of the population of the United States sit on 50% of the leadership in media, finance, and several other sectors of society where you have to earn the cultural capital to impact them as they impact the world we live in. 3% sitting on 50% of leadership. I think it's just, it's just part of their DNA that, uh, of course, you are careful about where you go to school. Of course, you invest. Of course, you, uh, you have to earn this right to be heard, to be taken seriously. So you defined it well in the beginning. Cultural capital is, as some sociologists define it, the, uh, they would say that the power, power is maybe not the best word. Let's talk about the, the impact or the effect of any faith movement or any movement is not measured in, in what's called its own cultural output. That is, output would be the number of books it writes, the number of videos it creates, the number of songs it writes, the number of um, people who profess it or attend. It is rather measure, measured by the degree to which its notions about reality are taken seriously and acted on. Say that one more time because it's worth parsing out. It's not measured so much by attendance in a, in a certain town. Say we have a thousand people coming to our church. Rather, it is measured by the degree to which the influential institutions in that town take our definition of reality seriously and act on it. Yeah, one example to throw out there would be, let's just talk about giving, for example. Um, it, assuming the church gave what it ought to give, and as Christians we gave what we ought to give, but um, even still, at a, at a lower giving rate, there's the, the practice of generosity is, uh, is, is pretty substantial in the church. One could look at that and say, well, that's a great way for society to live. You'd, you'd probably avoid a lot of the issues we see today in terms of the frustrations towards capitalism, etc. if society at large were more generous. But few look to the church and say, hey, can you help us understand how to live better lives? Should we be more generous with our lives? And I think that that's an example where the church does not have much cultural capital to speak into what it means to live better lives. 
Is that a, is yeah, that I think, a, yeah, I think that's one. exactly right, Pat. Um, <clears throat> because it would require somebody who has no interest in the faith community to take a, a greater interest in it, to be able to parse out the fact that while we have exemplary lives of generosity in the faith community, especially for those who are more rigorous in their attendance or involvement or what have you, on average, it's about 2.6% of their income, which is not exemplary. Right. And in fact, if we have these um, outliers who are very generous, that means that the average, the mean rather, is actually much lower. And so what we do, uh, I read a report recently that just inside the faith community, there is the availability or could be the availability, even if we just basically got close to an Old Testament tithe, there'd be $150 trillion unleashed for making the, this country a better place. $150 trillion. We have, in the faith community, just by sheer numbers, um, the capital right there to be taken seriously. I would, however, add that uh, it's not as simple as that because I would suggest to us, Pat, and we've talked about this before, that we, um, we're base we basically live the sort of lives that our neighbors live and the average person lives pretty uh, lives pretty much beyond their means, or they have ninety-seven percent of their income spoken for, and so you don't have the let's just say ten percent for fun. You don't have ten percent to give because you have mortgaged to the max. And so, uh, you know, part of COVID, as I'm sure a few people, at least in my generation, they watch a, they watch more HGTV, and you watch these boilerplate shows about a couple looking at three properties. But invariably, if they say to the agent, "Well, you know, we have budget for three fifty, what's the first home the agent shows them?" <laughs> One that's over budget and super fancy. That's right. Yeah. Show them. And, she, and the first thing you say, now I know this is a little over your budget, but and we're back to the big butt theory. And the big butt theory, listeners, is it don't matter what I just tell you. What I'm going to tell you now after the big butt is really the big point. Yeah. And so I know this is a little over your budget. It's 430, but I think you're going to love it. And sure enough, we're reminded of Augustine. My weight with the gravitas, with the gravitational pull in my life is my loves. Wherever my loves are, that's where I'm gonna go. And so if you love having the best of everything, you're going to spend beyond your means because your means are gonna become <clears throat> agents saying, well, you know, we can stretch these payments out over 40 years. 
Um, and so the whole notion of uh, first fruits, that regardless of where you live and what have you, you might say right off the top, well, we give the first fruits. So we give 15% of our income. Now, to be fair, by the way, first of all, I married Kathy. She saw my first uh, returns, and I think I gave like 2 or 3%. She was mortified. She was far more generous. Part two becoming one is I adjusted to her, who had a, she was more faithful to the Lord than I was in that one. So first of all, you can make adjustments on this thing. We began just to nick away at this thing every year to get it to where we felt it was getting in the neighborhood of generous. But uh, this uh, this just reminds us that uh, capital you can acquire it. But you'd have to redefine what's, what's the good life. You'd have to. I mean, COVID has reminded us one thing. I know it's been devastating to the restaurant industry, but you know, many families have this <clears throat> discovered this room. They blew the dust off it. They never knew it was there. It's called a kitchen. Hmm. And it has a thing called appliances. <laughs> you can use them. Well, you can actually use them. And it's, what's crazy is they take uh, food you, that's, Deliver from a grocery store, and you can actually do this thing called cooking. And uh, you can cook this food and create tasty meals. Uh, why do I say that? Because prior to this, and I know this, this raises a question about the whole restaurant industry, but you, Americans eat out as much as they ate out as a proportion of their income. It's, that's a pretty expensive way to eat. So capital is often just the way you distribute the talents that God has given you. But what would help would be to raise, be raised more in a Jewish home, for example, that would have bar mitzvahs that would say to some, a, a young man or a bat mitzvah, a young woman, when they're between the ages of seven and nine, uh, you are now an adult. You're coming into the adult world. You're going to take on adult responsibilities. For example, you're going to do well in this school, or we're going to get you into a better school, and you're going to apply yourself. So that's one way that parents can do it. But cultural capital doesn't have to mean scraping the heavens and getting into Harvard. It can be as simple as, as we talked about before, my wife Kathy and some others have launched a pop-up pantry almost entirely for the Hispanic community, only because Annapolis is a trifurcated town, black, Hispanic, and white, and never the three shall meet. And the Hispanic population disproportionately impacted by COVID, upwards of 75% of the families because their business is in their trunk of their car lost their work. So the most recent pop-up pantry had 440 cars come through it. And, but because they have created through sheer hard work, trying to cobble together the logistics systems to serve these people, you know, several weeks ago, the mayor gave Kathy, the mayor of Annapolis, gave Kathy this plaque 
of recognition for their hard work. That's called cultural capital. Now you say, well, what does that mean? That means that you have more likelihood to one day begin to present to the city council or to the mayor ways that the city could be better and to be at least listened to and taken seriously, if not acted on. Versus if you're just Harvey Schmidt lab showing up somewhere and saying, hey, the Bible says you ought to do this. There's a lot here under the covers too that that we've talked about previously and things like if if loving my neighbor as a believer, if loving my neighbor, if the only definition of that I have in my head is really being nice and making sure that person gets into heaven, then this isn't going to make a lot of sense. And so we, yep. we've talked a lot about those other kind of assumptions that we're operating on right now that, for example, loving my neighbor isn't just that definition that uh, I would, I would, if what we're saying here doesn't make sense, go back and, and listen to some previous episodes because that's, that's going to shed the light here. So what we're also not talking about is uh, like, for example, I'm not, I'm not trying to approach this kind of season of my life right now with how do I gain more influence and, uh, and become more powerful for the sake of myself because networks are important. So you watch a movie like social network, or there's a, there's a great book called Bitcoin billionaires about the uh, two <laughs> brothers. It's, it's a really, really fascinating, but it, you read that book and it's talking all about uh, the same brothers that were in the social network. It, it actually provides a little bit of a better light, uh, put shed spider light on them. But do you just see the vast uh, network in the capital that they've, they've built through their family, et cetera. But what we're not talking about is just invading that network to, to gain power. That's not at all what we're talking about. If we're going right. to take our faith seriously and we're going to love our neighbors as we ought to, well, then that does mean impacting culture in some way. And so my personal pursuit here is if I, if I want to steward well the talents God's given me, if I want to refine into skills and, and, and bind those with my talents, how do I love my neighbors well? And um, just going off and having a having a, a salary, loving my family well is is a great thing. Um, but also, I'm I'm considering is God calling me elsewhere to to be more influential in other arenas for the sake of loving my neighbor. Um, part of that is figuring out well how do I how do I live a good life? What is a good life? And you mentioned that very well a couple minutes ago, talking about if I'm also not. Uh, reevaluating what it means to live out my faith. We've also had great conversations on that uh, that have flushed out other other pieces that are important, uh, developing spiritual disciplines, good habits around spiritual disciplines, etc. So there are a lot of kind of facets here that, that in regards to what we're talking about. But I wanted to clarify, all of this is in the context of loving my neighbor. And so um, That's right. at the end of the day here, what I'd like to know is, you know, what, how, how do I best prepare myself to love my neighbor? Uh, how, what's in front of me? Uh, and how do I, both as Pat Brown, but if someone is listening to this and sort they're asking similar questions, sure, they're, they're, uh, what questions should they be asking uh, of themselves or asking others to evaluate of themselves in terms of what's next? So, great. Um, yeah. Well said. Uh, first of all, yes, it is. It, this is about loving God and loving our neighbor. So yeah, this is well this is just the great commandment. 
And uh, so the Great Commandment asks this question. Shalom asks this question. It actually asks two questions. The first is this. You go to the lowest of the low and you ask yourself, would I want to live this way? So I would say, first of all, if you think about cultural capital, it would be go to the roughest part of your town. Stay in your car if you don't feel safe. And then ask yourself, would I want to live this way? And if you can drive away with a, no, but I'm getting the hell out of here, then this conversation is going to mean next to nothing to you. So, you know, tell the truth here. I'll tell the truth. But in the sleep of the woman who started with this, this started this pop-up pantry, would I be there? I don't know. Uh, listeners, this woman I sleep with is the one I've been married to for 40 years. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I'm in a network that has pulled me into something where um, to earn that capital, I, I guess Kathy listened to these podcasts, so hey, babe, I love you, but I'm going to mention your name here. I'm, I'm working around people who have given up much of their lives for the last nine months. They didn't get Saturdays off. They didn't get Fridays off. They don't get a lot of the week off. They're getting paid nothing. They didn't get to go off on jaunts here and there, just take a break. It's because they live in a community where they go, I wouldn't want to live this way. So what are you going to do about it? Take the little bit of cultural capital we have, that is, we're teachers here and educators and highly respected in this community. The parents love us and they have needs. But I'd be less than honest if I didn't say most of my white friends, if they make a visit every once in a while to help out, especially if they came this summer and they find that you have to wring out a shirt and bring a second one because you're so sweaty and you lose X amount of pounds, they don't come back. What they're saying is, maybe legitimately, this isn't where I want to earn cultural capital. I get it. That's fine. But I think for a lot of them, they're saying, this is just damn hard work. I don't want to do this every week. I want to go play golf some weekends. I want to. So I'm bearing, I'm putting, I'm pressing the pedal to the metal here, Pat, because first of all, cultural capital is not going to mean much in the Jewish understanding of Shalom. If you don't go to some of the most difficult spots and ask, do I have any dirt under my fingernails here? Or is the only thing I do is click a button and donate. Now, believe me, I'm all for donations. That's not my point. My point is, Robert Putnam wrote about this years ago. For most people, charity, the word for love, he called it, had become check writing. So your fingernails are never beaten up. You don't have scars on your body from big boxes, one of them tipping over and scratching up your leg because it's filled with produce and accidents happen. You write checks. So I would say, first of all, 
get a belly full of whatever town you're in and ask yourself, do I want to live this way? No. Second, now here's why. The cultural capital that you accrue ought to, you ought to ask yourself, okay, what I'm, whatever I'm doing, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. If you're in the industry primarily to gain a comfortable lifestyle and a relatively decent income so you can live where you want to live, you'll, you'll hardly give thought to cultural capital. And so for my friend who was 29, <clears throat> he, he, he was looking at this daunting, I can't really do a reset. We did say to him, you know what you could do, because here it is, here's where you're likely to end up teaching. You could teach a next generation to do better than what I did. That, by the way, is basically the gist of my life for as many years as the Lord gives me, is I didn't think early enough about cultural capital. And so whatever I've earned, I'm really investing it, Pat, in your kids and their kids and their kids. So you have an opportunity now with this transition to say, should I start something? Uh, well, first of all, do I have the financial and cultural capital to do that and the network? If you do, you might do that. Or you say, or if I go work here, here, here. But the point is not to work here, here, and here to say, I got to get a job and make money. Of course, you've got to get a job and make money. But if that's all it becomes, this whole podcast today will mean nothing. Yeah. We're, we're called to more than that. And you will, my, my friends, it just has to be said, you'll be in the suburbs of the one talented person who said, well, I wasn't as talented as Pat and I wasn't as talented as Mike. <clears throat> so I just had to hunker down and get a job. You wicked, lazy person. Now, by the way, I'm quoting Jesus there. And uh, the Jesus that we've sort of turned into this uh, lovey-dovey, soft, affirming, all about grace, never say a bad word about you, loves you to death, couldn't love you anymore, blah, 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 blah. Now, this is the same Jesus who says in Matthew 12, Every careless word you say, you're going to give an account of it in the judgment. Or the same Jesus who's going to say to people who show up at the wedding banquet, Lord, didn't we do this and this for you? Didn't we? I mean, we were crazy about you, Lord. We served you. And he's, he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Part of Advent, which is when we're doing this podcast, in the, litur in the church calendar, if you follow the worldwide liturgy and the lectionary, rather. You know, so we've been through some of the prophets and also Revelation. And the Jesus in Revelation is the Jesus most evangelicals would not recognize. 
and there is a judgment coming that's similar to what happened with the Babylonian uh, in the for the Judeans who for 500 years is basically about a comfortable existence in their land even to the degree that they had to form a partnership or an ally military ally with Egypt to fend off the Babylonians the big bad Babylon the pagan evil Babylonians and they paid a price for that and eventually it was the bad Babylonians God shipped them off to be their servants and slaves in other words put them in a position where they had no option seek their flourishing love your neighbor and we know that most of the Judeans in Babylon ignored that. And so cultural capital is just not in our, it's really not much in our DNA. I'd like to think it is becoming in our DNA of some younger Christians I know, people like you. And I think what it means is you say, okay, it doesn't matter if I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. I don't have to be the most talented. I love the story of, of uh, Larry Bird so many years ago. Bird had minimal talent, but he developed his skills. He also had a great cocky edge to him. <laughs> he came to the first three-point contest you know, years ago, NBA All-Star Weekend. He goes, he goes up to each one of his... Uh, competitors and said so which one of you is coming in second <laughs> uh, but bird would also say he's the 10,000 hour rule so could he jump that high no was he the fastest no see talent is michael jordan's jumping from the free throw line all the way in and dunking that's talent these white legs underneath this white body standing here they ain't never going that high no matter what but skill is making a free throw and anybody it's just like skill is be able to bench 250 Pat you know something about weightlifting what percentage of the population could one day through rigorous work bench 250 oh a good, a good chunk, quite, quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. There you go. Now that's earning capital. That's physical capital. But there you go. It so can't that, be done. Those are, those are really good questions that you had. So the first being what I want to live this way. Uh, what I want to live this way. Yep. The second one, uh, second aspect of Shalom was always, because Shalom was always understood as universal, universal meaning, okay, where do you live? So you say, I live in. Phoenix, okay? Drive to the roughest part and ask yourself, would I want to live this way? I've done that. So I sat, on, I sat with, in a friend's car we drove by where a couple of years ago, hundreds of Hispanics lined up on a curb waiting for employers to come by and just go, ding, 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 I'll hire you, 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 you today. And you go, would you want to live this way? No, okay? What can be done about that? You start there. 
So now you're not going to work the next that day in finance and go, this has nothing to do with the town I live in. I serve my client, my client's interested in the highest return on their investment. That's the work I do, period. If you're a thoughtful, conscientious Christian, that's not just the work you do. And the work you do is not just, okay, I take some of it and I write checks. That's a good start, but that's not the work either. So the first is, how much dirt's under your fingernails? Second, second aspect of Shalom for universal flourishing was, uh, it's called, uh, subs- it's, a Greek, it's a Latin word, but it basically says, sometimes people just need a little help. What kind of help? would be most beneficial. So you don't turn them into dependence, but you give them the opportunity to accrue the capital that you enjoy. So that's a different way to think about it, Pat. Yeah, can you say that again? Yeah. The second aspect of Shalom is sometimes people just need a little help. Hmm. What would be most beneficial to help them accrue the capital that you have accrued, that's different than giving them money hmm. or even this pop-up pantry. That's a step toward. Here's a, you know, years ago it was put this way. You can give a man a, a corn or you can give him seed and teach him how to uh, grow the corn. Shalom is giving him the seed, teaching him how to grow it. But you can see that then becomes so much more complex for a town because you're now saying the point is not to create dependency which people will clamor toward by the way they'll be drawn to it look at the history of the soviet union but you'll gut the initiative out of someone i mean to go week after week to basically acknowledge i am not provided for my family now that goes two ways and it goes this it either goes toward well, we're going to do something with the help of these people who love us to improve our situation. Or it becomes, I'm a victim. The system is rigged. I deserve this stuff. I'm not doing much about changing it. Just keep feeding me. People don't like to read about this. And Charles Murray has been gotten a lot of flack. But you know, the statistics are on his side. The Hispanic community in this country is just blowing away much of the African American. It's because they have not developed as much of an entitlement. An entitlement is the system's rigged, nothing I can do about it, you owe us. And I commend uh, the clergyman I met here in town whose church has poured into the African-American community. He asked himself this question because he hasn't been here this many years. But does the community want to improve? Some do, of course. I know I'm painting with a broad brush. But in fact, this is why Acton University did uh, the work on poverty and how good books say you know, here's one title of one, when helping hurts. And because we don't understand capital, a whole lot of our helping 
makes us feel good, but it's not shalom because it doesn't any, in any way help people accrue the capital necessary to not live this way. So we go into a housing project and we, we love on the people and we do this and that, but then we go back to our homes. We don't think about it again until the next season when we give gifts and we feel pretty good about that. But if you were living in that stuff every day, you'd go, there's no way in hell I want to live this way. But no one's showing me a way out. Cultural capital takes that into account. And a good little story on this for listeners, if you're interested, um, just Google Lifeway Church and Park West, which was a 25-year, $90 million effort through overlapping networks of financiers, developers, builders, city, and the faith community to actually build a condominium apartment building in Washington, D.C. to change the problem of grand families. Families in the African-American community, kids are being raised by grandparents because the parents are either dead or in prison. And the only way to change that is structurally to surround these families with a network of other families. And so it's a for-profit apartment building that was built several years ago. I think 280 units, very nice. And I think a quarter of them are subsidized for grand families. That's a system solution, but notice all the capital it required. So I'll cut to the chase team by getting dirt under our fingernails in the Hispanic community. What's the one capital that they lack that really undermines most of the efforts to create a flourishing community? Uh, I would guess financial. Nope. Citizenship. 11 million plus are undocumented. If you're undocumented, then you can't go to get financial capital. But you also can't get a, a loan to purchase a home. And so the reason that so many run on a cash system which does make ends meet, but doesn't accrue any capital, is uh, they're undocumented. Mm. Now, why are they undocumented? Well, you know the answer to that, but read, uh, hey, hey, listeners, just do this. Google Venezuela today. When Chavez passed away and he had a an entire socialist state built on oil revenue. The oil infrastructure today in Venezuela, 90% of it has collapsed. It has rusted. It has not been maintained. It can probably not be rebuilt. The average Venezuelan I was reading has lost somewhere between 23 and 25 pounds because of a lack of food. I'm reading that figures somewhere of those living under poverty well exceeds 50%. I mean, it is, it's a disaster. So what would you do, Pat? Yeah, I'd want to get out of there. Exactly. You take the mainland route, and where do you end up? Good old USA. That's right. 
and you work your butt off, it's been guesstimated that if you take out the quarter million Central Americans who make the hospitality industry, or at least before COVID, make it run in this region, DC included, that that whole industry would collapse. They make the beds, they cook the food, they do the landscaping, and they work their rear off. But they can't accrue the kind of capital, by and large, if you're undocumented. Now, what's the solution? I'm not saying that I understand the politics enough to know, but I know it's become a politicized issue that strands these people outside the networks because you have one party wants to almost have an amnesty clause and another is politicized to send them all home, a thoroughly unworkable solution. And uh, when in fact, if you were in their shoes, if you were serving these people, and again, I only got the dirt under my fingernails because of the woman I sleep with. Really. I might have gone once or twice, but to have my nose put in this thing weekly, begin to get in touch with, these people don't have access to capital. And somehow we're supposed to do something about that. And somehow, Pat, in your transition, wherever you go, based upon where you live, and by the way, I believe there's such a thing as moral proximity. So we'll cap it with this. Moral proximity means that uh, you're not responsible for the entire world. Uh, this is an excellent book, by the way, by John Schneider um, called The Good of Affluence. The Good of Affluence. I highly recommend it. And readers, here's what I recommend. Don't get bogged down in the academic part of it. It's a very, it's not a large book. It's easy to read, but he'll get into stuff about the text in Isaiah and the rest. Set all aside. Get the big picture. Here's the big picture. Affluence is inherently good in the Bible. It's defined as flourishing, which is spiritual, physical, financial, and it is, quote, God's preferred condition for all people. That's important. God's preferred condition for all people. All people. Schneider and others will point out that in the 1800s, primarily, but not exclusively, a view began to emerge that poverty was spiritual. Now, if God calls you to renounce those things, that's fine. But that sort of glorifies poverty. And um, what it also does is it takes all the capital of the world, financial, political, and rest, and assigns it to other people who go, that's nuts. Hard to make a better world. And so we sort of glory in these... Uh, outliers, Mother Teresa, fantastic work. But 
Mother Teresa really didn't do much to change the system, but it was a it was an absolutely necessary work, but insufficient if your aim is shalom. And so if affluence is the preferred condition for all people, then you have to ask yourself, what would it take for all three classes here in Annapolis to actually have access to the same capital that I have as a white man? So because uh, the picture really is in the Bible of a, of a rising tide is supposed to lift all boats. But if you don't have a boat, it's sink or swim. And if your boat has a leak, it's going down baby. And it, it, it doesn't, it makes, it has these assumptions that you have access to a boat, it's a good boat, and you can, and that's just not true for a lot of people. And we don't think much about that. Yeah, that was uh, helpful. Definitely helpful. There's, there's two questions. And then obviously the two parts of Shalom are gold. I have a lot to, um, just to sit in on that, let that marinate a little bit. It it uh, it figures in with some of the conversations we're having with Christopher West, only in that you know we wouldn't we're not going to become a, uh, an appendage of Christopher's work, but Christopher is really helpful in some of our conversations, reminding us that the key to this faith before the enlightenment was the word became flesh. And so you got to flesh this thing out, Pat, you're calling and fleshing it out means dirt under your fingernails in some of the less fortunate and go, is there any way you, you get the point? And, mm -hmm. and the reason I think this is important is that, uh, you know, in the tech world, that the Tristan Harris's actually embody that in their flesh. It's not just platforms and social media and cloud and this mm -hmm. and that. It's, and look what we're doing to this generation. We're responsible guys. And it has a small audience. Yeah, just, but that's worth uh, um, taking account because, um, you know, there's this little line in Ian McGilchrist's book when he, says American Christianity is undermining itself because he says its general notion is and the flesh became word. Hmm. Isn't that powerful? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Talk about it, study. It's piety that simply says God can do anything. I do my work. We write a check. We give. The other thing too we might talk about in that is that for most believers, their flesh is so consumed in church activities they wouldn't know what's going on in their town. They're got to get in a community group, and they get in a men's group, and they're supposed to be at church, and they want, and then they serve a church. And it, the 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 world that <clears throat> most live in, they go, I don't have time to do anything else. Mm -hmm.